0: Chapter Nine, Part Two of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris in Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Matchen. Episode Six, Chapter Nine, Part Two. The next day, after dinner, Camille wrote me a note, as I expected, requesting me to give up all other engagements, in order to present myself at five o'clock at the Palais Royal, in the same room in which the Duchess had already received me the day before. I was punctual. An elderly valet de chambre, who was waiting for me, immediately went to give notice of my arrival, and five minutes after the charming princess made her appearance. After addressing me in a very complimentary manner, she drew all my answers from her pocket, and inquired whether I had any pressing engagements. "'Your Highness may be certain that I shall never have any more important business than to attend to your wishes.' "'Very well. I do not intend to go out, and we can work.' She then showed me all the questions which she had already prepared on different subjects, and particularly those relating to the cure of her pimples.' One circumstance had contributed to render my oracle precious to her, because nobody could possibly know it, and I had guessed it. Had I not done so, I dare say it would have been all the same. I had labored myself under the same disease, and I was enough of a physician to be aware that to attempt the cure of a cutaneous disease by active remedies might kill the patient. I had already answered that she could not get rid of the pimples on her face in less than a week, but that a year of diet would be necessary to effect a radical cure. We spent three hours in ascertaining what she was to do, and believing implicitly in the power and in the science of the oracle, she undertook to follow faithfully everything ordered. Within one week, all the ugly pimples had entirely disappeared. I took care to purge her slightly. I prescribed every day what she was to eat, and forbade the use of all cosmetics. I only advised her to wash herself every morning and evening with plantain water. The modest oracle told the princess to make use of the same water for her ambitions on every part of her body, where she desired to obtain the same result, and she obeyed the prescription religiously. I went to the opera on purpose on the day when the Duchess showed herself there with a smooth and rosy shin. After the opera, she took a walk in the great alley of the Palais-Royal, followed by the ladies of her suite, and flattered by everybody. She saw me, and honored me with a smile. I was truly happy. Camille, Madame de Polignac, and and Monsieur de Melfort, were the only persons who knew that I was the oracle of the Duchess, and I enjoyed my success. But the next day a few pimples reappeared on her beautiful complexion and i received an order to repair at once to the palais royal the valet who did not know me showed me into a delightful boudoir near a closet in which there was a bath the duchess came in she looked sad for she had several small pimples on the forehead and the chin she held in her hand a question for the oracle and as it was only a short one I thought it would give her the pleasure of finding the answer by herself. The numbers translated by the princess reproached her for having transgressed the regimen prescribed. She confessed to having drank some liqueurs and eaten some ham, but she was astounded at having found that answer herself, and she could not understand how such an answer could result from an agglomeration of numbers. At that moment one of her women came in to whisper a few words to her. She told her to wait outside, and turning towards me, she said, Have you any objection to seeing one of your friends who was as delicate as discreet? With these words she hastily concealed in her pocket all the papers which did not relate to her disease. Then she called out, A man entered the room, whom I took for a stable boy. It was Monsieur de Melfort. See, si, said the princess to him, "'Monsieur Casanova has taught me the cabalistic science.' And she showed him the answer she had obtained herself. The Count could not believe it. "'Well,' said the Duchess to me, "'we must convince him. "'What shall I ask?' "'Anything Your Highness chooses.' She considered for one instance, and drawing from her pocket a small ivory box, she wrote, "'Tell me why this pomatum has no longer any effect.' She formed the pyramid, the columns in the key, as I had taught her, and she was ready to get the answer. I told her how to make the additions and subtractions, which seemed to come from the numbers, but which, in reality, were only arbitrary. Then I told her to interpret the numbers and letters, and I left the room under some pretext. I came back when I thought that she had completed the translation, and I found her rapt in amazement. "'Ah!' she exclaimed. "'What an answer!' Perhaps it is not the right one. But that will happen sometimes, madame. Not the right one, sir. It is divine. Here it is. That palmatum has no effect upon the skin of a woman who has been a mother. I do not see anything extraordinary in that answer, madame. Very likely, sir. But it is because you do not know that the palmatum in question was given to me five years ago by the Abbe de Brosse. Who it cured me at that time, but it was ten months before the birth of the Duc de Montpensier. I would give anything in the world to be thoroughly acquainted with that sublime cabalistic science. What? said the Count. Is it the Pomatum of History of which I know? Precisely. It is astonishing. I wish to ask one more question concerning a woman, the name of whom I would rather not give say the woman whom I have in my thoughts. She then asked this question. What disease is that woman suffering from? She made the calculation, and the answer which I made her brought forth was this. She wants to deceive her husband. This time the Duchess fairly screamed with astonishment. It was getting very late, and I was preparing to take leave, when Monsieur de Melfort, who was speaking to Her Highness, told me that we might go together. When we were out, he told me that the cabalistic answer concerning the pomatum was truly wonderful. This was the history of it. The Duchess, pretty as you see her now, had her face so fearfully covered with pimples that the Duke, thoroughly disgusted, had not the courage to come near her to enjoy his rights as a husband, and the poor princess was pining with useless longing to become a mother the Abbe de Brossus cured her with that pomatum, and her beautiful face, having entirely recovered its original bloom, she made her appearance at the Théâtre Francais, in the Queen's box. The Duke de Chartres, not knowing that his wife had gone to the theatre, where she went but very seldom, was in the King's box. He did not recognize the Duchess, but thinking her very handsome, he inquired who she was, and when he was told he would not believe it, he left the royal box, went to his wife, complimented her, and announced his visit for the very same night. The result of that visit was, nine months afterwards, the birth of the duke de Montpensier, who is now five years old and enjoys excellent health. During the whole of her pregnancy, the duchess kept her face smooth and blooming, but immediately after her delivery, the pimples reappeared, and the pomatum remained without any effect. As he concluded his explanation, the Count offered me a tortoise shell box, with a very good likeness of Her Royal Highness, and said, The Duchess begs you to accept of this portrait, and in case you would like it to have it set, she wishes you to make use of this for that purpose. It was a purse of one hundred louis. I accepted both, and entreated the Count, to offer the expressions of my profound gratitude to Her Highness. I never had the portrait mounted, for I was then in want of money for some other purpose. After that, the Duchess did me the honor of sending for me several times, but her cure remained altogether out of the question. She could not make up her mind to follow a regular diet. She would sometimes keep me at work five or six hours, now in one corner, now in another, going in and out herself all the time, and having either supper or dinner brought to me by the old valet, who never uttered a word. Her questions to the oracle alluded only to the secret affairs which she was curious to know, and she often found truths, with which I was not myself acquainted, through the answers. She wished me to teach her the cabalistic science, but she never pressed her wish upon me. She, however, commissioned M. de Melfort to tell me that, if I would teach her, she would get me an appointment with an income of twenty-five thousand francs. Alas, it was impossible— I was madly in love with her, but I would not for the world have allowed her to guess my feelings. My pride was the corrective of my love. I was afraid of her haughtiness humiliating me, and perhaps I was wrong. All I know is that I even now repent of having listened to a foolish pride. It is true that I enjoyed certain privileges which she might have refused me if she had known my love. One day she wished my oracle to tell her whether it was possible to cure a cancer "'which Madame de Popinlier had in her breast. "'I took it in my head to answer that the lady alluded to had no cancer "'and was enjoying excellent health. "'How is that?' said the Duchess. "'Everyone in Paris believes her to be suffering from a cancer, "'and she has a consultation upon consultation. "'Yet I have faith in the Oracle.' "'Soon afterwards, seeing the Duc de Richelieu at the court,' She told him she was certain that Madame de Popinliere was not ill. The marshal, who knew the secret, told me that she was mistaken, but she proposed a wager of a hundred thousand francs. I trembled when the Duchess related the conversation to me. "'Has he accepted your wages?' I inquired anxiously. "'No, he seemed surprised. You are aware that he ought to know the truth.' Three or four days after that conversation, the Duchess told me triumphantly that M. de Richelieu had confessed to her that the cancer was only a ruse to excite the pity of her husband, with whom Madame de Popinier wanted to live again on good terms. She added that the Marshal had expressed his willingness to pay one hundred thousand louis to know how she had discovered the truth. "'If you wish to earn that sum,' said the Duchess to me, "'I will tell him about it.' But I was afraid of a snare.' I knew the temper of the marshal, and the story of the hole in the wall, through which he introduced himself into that lady's apartment, was the talk of all Paris. Monsieur de la Popinliere himself made the adventure more public by refusing to live with his wife, to whom he paid an income of twelve thousand francs. The Duchess de Chartres had written some charming poetry on that amusing affair, but out of her own cotier... No one knew it except the king, who was fond of the princess, although she was in the habit of scoffing at him. One day, for instance, she asked him whether it was true that the king of Prussia was expected in Paris. Louis the Fifteenth, having answered that it was an idle rumor, I am very sorry, she said, for I am longing to see a king. My brother had completed several pictures, and having decided on presenting one to Monsieur de Marguigny, we repaired one morning to the apartment of that nobleman, who lived in the Louvre, where all the artists were in the habit of paying their court to him. We were shown into a hall adjoining his private apartment, and having arrived early, we waited for Monsieur de Magigny. My brother's picture was exposed there. It was a battle piece in the style of Bourgognon. The first person who entered through the room stopped before the picture, examined it attentively, and moved on. "'evidently thinking that it was a poor painting. "'A moment afterwards, two more persons came in, "'looked at the picture, smiled, and said, "'That's the work of a beginner.' "'I glanced at my brother, who was seated near me. "'He was in a fever. "'In less than a quarter of an hour, the room was full of people, "'and the unfortunate picture was the butt of everybody's laughter. "'My poor brother felt almost dying, "'and thanked his stars that no one knew him personally.' The state of his mind was such that I heartily pitied him. I rose with the intention of going to some other room, and to console him, I told him that M. de Marguigny would soon come, and that his approbation of the picture would avenge him for the insults of the crowd. Fortunately, this was not my brother's opinion, and we left the room hurriedly, took a coach, went home, and sent our servant to fetch back the painting. As soon as it had been brought back, my brother made a battle of it in real earnest, for he cut it up with a sword into twenty pieces. He made up his mind to settle his affairs in Paris immediately, and to go somewhere else to study an art which he loved to idolatry. We resolved on going to Dresden together. Two or three days before leaving the delightful city of Paris, I dined alone at the house of the gatekeeper of the Tuileries. His name was Conde. After dinner, his wife, a rather pretty woman, presented me the bill on which every item was reckoned at double its value. I pointed it out to her, but she answered very curtly that she could not abate one sou. I paid, and, as the bill was receipted with the words Femme Conde, I took the pen, and to the words Conde, I added Labre, and I went away leaving the bill on the table. As I was taking a walk in the Tuileries, not thinking any more of my female extortioner, when a small man, with his hat cocked on one side of his head, and a large nosegay in his buttonhole, and sporting a long sword, swaggered up to me, and informed me, without any further explanation, that he had a fancy to cut my throat. But my small specimen of humanity, I said, would require you to jump on a chair to reach my throat. I will cut off your ears. Sacre bleu, monsieur! No vulgar passion, my dear sir, "'Follow me. You shall soon be satisfied.' I walked rapidly towards the Porte Etoiles. where, seeing that the place was deserted, I abruptly asked the fellow what he wanted, and why he had attacked me. "'I am the Chevalier de Talville. You have insulted an honest woman, who is under my protection. Unsheath!' With these words he drew his long sword, I unsheathed mine, and after a minute or two I lunged rapidly, and wounded him in the breast.' He jumped backward, exclaiming that I had wounded him treacherously. You lie, you rascally mannequin. Acknowledge it, or I thrust my sword through your miserable body. You will not do it, for I am wounded, but I insist upon having my revenge, and we will leave the decision of this to competent judges. Miserable wrangler, wretched fighter, if you are not satisfied, I will cut off your ears. I left him there satisfied that I had acted according to the laws of the duello, for he had drawn his sword before me, and if he had not been skillful enough to cover himself in good time, it was not, of course, my business to teach him. Towards the middle of August I left Paris with my brother. I had made a stay of two years in that city, the best in the world. I had enjoyed myself greatly, and met with no unpleasantness, except that I had now, and then, been short of money, We went through Metz, Mayence, and Frankfurt, and arrived in Dresden at the end of the same month. My mother offered us the most affectionate welcome, and was delighted to see us again. My brother remained four years in that pleasant city, constantly engaged in the study of art, and copying all the fine paintings of battles by the great masters of the celebrated Electoral Gallery he went back to Paris only when he felt he could set criticism at defiance. I shall say hereafter how it was we both reached that city about the same time. But before that period, dear reader, you will see what good and adverse fortune did for or against me. My life in Dresden, until the end of the Carnival, in 1753, does not offer any extraordinary adventure. To please the actors, and especially my mother, I wrote a kind of melodrama, in which I brought out two harlequins. It was a parody of the Frere Ennemi by Racine. The king was highly amused at the comic fancies which filled my play, and he made me a beautiful present. The king was grand and generous, and these qualities found a ready echo in the breast of the famous Count de Bruhl. I left Dresden soon after that, bidding adieu to my mother, to my brother Francois, and to my sister, then the wife of Pierre Auguste, chief player of the harpsichord at the court, who died two years ago, leaving his widow and family in comfortable circumstances. My stay in Dresden was marked by an amorous souvenir, of which I got rid, as in previous similar circumstances, by a diet of six weeks. I have often remarked that the greatest part of my life was spent in trying to make myself ill, And when I had succeeded in trying to recover my health, I have met with equal success in both things. And now that I enjoy excellent health in that line, I am very sorry to be physically unable to make myself ill again. But age, that cruel and unavoidable disease, compels me to be in good health in spite of myself. The illness I allude to, which the Italians call mal français, although we might claim the honor of its first importation, does not shorten life, but it leaves indelible marks on the face. Those scars, less honorable perhaps than those which are won in the service of Mars, being obtained through pleasure, ought not to leave any regret behind. In Dresden I had frequent opportunities of seeing the king, who was very fond of the Count de Brule, his minister, because that favorite possessed the double secret of showing himself more extravagant even than his master, and of indulging all his whims. Never was a monarch a greater enemy to economy. He laughed heartily when he was plundered, and he spent a great deal in order to have occasion to laugh often. As he had not sufficient wit to amuse himself with the follies of other kings, and with the absurdities of mankind, he kept four buffoons, who are called fools in Germany although these degraded beings are generally more witty than their masters. The province of these jesters is to make their owner laugh by all sorts of jokes, which are usually nothing but disgusting tricks, or low, impertinent jests. Yet these professional buffoons sometimes captivate the mind of their master, to such an extent that they obtain from him very important favors in behalf of the persons they protect and in consequence of this they are often courted by the highest families. Where is the man who will not debase himself if he be in want? Does not Agamemnon say, in Homer, that in such a case man must necessarily be guilty of meanness? And Agamemnon and Homer lived long before our time. It evidently proves that men are at all times moved by the same motive, namely self-interest. It is wrong to say that the Count de Brule was the ruin of Saxony, for he was only the faithful minister of his royal master's inclinations. His children are poor, and justify their father's conduct. The court at Dresden was at that time the most brilliant in Europe. The fine arts flourished, but there was no gallantry, for King Augustus had no inclination for the fair sex, and the Saxons were not of a nature to be thus inclined unless the example was set by their sovereign. At my arrival in Prague, where I did not intend to stop, I delivered a letter I had for Locatelli, manager of the opera, and went to pay a visit to Madame Morelli, an old acquaintance for whom I had great affection, and for two or three days she supplied all the wants of my heart. As I was on the point of leaving Prague, I met in the street my friend, Fabri who had become a colonel, and he insisted upon my dining with him. After embracing him, I represented to him, but in vain, that I had made all arrangements to go away immediately. "'You will go this evening,' he said, "'with a friend of mine, and you will catch the coach.' I had to give way, and I was delighted to have done so, for the remainder of the day passed in the most agreeable manner. Fabry was longing for war, and his wishes were gratified two years afterwards.' he covered himself with glory. I must say one word about Locatelli, who was an original character well worthy to be known. He took his meals every day at a table laid out for thirty persons, and the guests were his actors, actresses, dancers of both sexes, and a few friends. He did the honors of his well-supplied board nobly, and his real passion was good living. I shall have occasion to mention him again at the time of my journey to St. Petersburg. Where I met him, and where he died only lately, at the age of ninety. End of chapter nine, part two.